I had to pay for this movie. So did I. I thought I got it free on Amazon Prime. This was $4. $4 I could have spent, I don't know. I, I would have preferred to like throw it on the street. This is the Bad Hops Podcast, a baseball podcast where we discuss everything but the box score. So if you want to take a closer look at the MLB debut of 35-year-old rookie Jim Morris or dive deeper into why Roger Maris's 61 should never have had an asterisk, this is not the place. But if you want to talk about turning baseball legends into oafish caricatures, welcome. I'm Jackie Micucci. And I'm Mark Butler. And today we're grabbing some popcorn as we sit back and watch one of Hollywood's worst portrayals of George Herman Ruth. Welcome to Bad Hops. And welcome to the Bad Hops Film Festival. That's right. Instead of watching baseball's greatest movies, we decided, and I will take full blame on this one, we decided that yep. we would we would watch, yes, yes, Mark is very happy to give me credit for this, that we would watch some of baseball's worst movies, right? So, and there's a large list. There is a large list of pretty terrible movies that we could have picked from, but this was my pick. We watched the 1992 movie, The Babe, so you don't have to. So, Mark, I'm going to start us off with the Rotten Tomatoes plot summary. George Herman Babe Ruth, played by John Goodman, grows from a troubled boy who is sent to an orphanage to one of the most successful baseball players on record. Babe first becomes a power hitter and pitcher for the Boston Red Sox. After a falling out with the Red Sox owner, Harry Frazé, played by Peter Donnett. Babe is sold to the New York Yankees. He is idolized in New York, setting a record for home runs, as well as creating dramatic moments like hitting two homers for a sick boy in the hospital. This movie also stars Kelly McGillis as Claire Hodgson Ruth, Trini Alvarado as Helen Woodford Ruth, and everyone's favorite, James Cromwell, has a small but pivotal role as Brother Matthias. And the Rotten Tomatoes rating on this one was, I think, a very generous 47%. Now, see, I think that's a little harsh because, yeah, I thought this movie was very sweet and tender. And you left a couple things out. And so I want to just fill in the blanks on, on the, the summary. Okay, the, well, I, I, that, wasn't, that was the Rotten Tomatoes summary, okay. in fairness. That was not mine. And so I'm sure there were things left out. So go ahead. The opening scene was amazing to me. When, when we see Babe, an orphan, who's chosen for a guess the weight contest at a county fair. And the winning farmer, Arthur Hoggett, brings him home and allows him to stay with a border collie named Fly, her <laughs> mate Rex, and their puppies in the barn. Did we not watch the same movie? Oh, no, that was a different James Cromwell movie. Very different. It was called one. Babe. It was. And it just not the same. Not the same. Yeah. Oh. My advice, my advice to our listeners, if you see the word the run away. Yeah. If you see the word babe and it's got a pig in the picture, you're fine. And that's, that's the James Cromwell picture you, you want to be watching. It is. De- how James, actually, I, I mean, how any of these actors ended up in this this movie. I mean, John Goodman, he's a favorite actor of mine. I, I loved him in The Big Lebowski. He's great in Treme. I don't know where this role came from. Do you think he was still in Roseanne during this period of time? It was like 1992. Oh, yeah. I did a lot of research on the state okay. of John Goodman's affairs at the time. And because I worried for his safety. He seemed mm-hmm. unwell. He did. And, and I know he's had some heart attacks, but as far as I can tell, he was free and clear of cardiac stuff at this point. Mm-hmm. He was making good Roseanne money. He was making good Coen Brothers movies because okay. I think he'd already done, definitely done Raising Arizona and I believe Barton Fink. Had he done Big Lebowski or was that later? That was about six years later. Okay, I thought so. So not sure maybe it was the money. Maybe it was the allure of playing a baseball legend. Do we want to do a little breakdown of the, of the movie scene by scene? And I will say that the movie is mainly historically accurate, which 
kind of blew me away considering how ham-handed it is. But there are definitely some places where it veers off. We'll get to the opening credits, Mark, because I know that you had a lot of feels about this. I will say, so it opens with a sweeping shot of old Yankee Stadium. And initially I was like, oh, cool, look, it's the old stadium. And then it devolves from there. Yeah, because then the very next thing you see is more aerial shots of Yankee Stadium, and then a few more, and a few more. And I think this opening sequence runs probably two to three minutes. It was very long. You hear a very generic, kind of natural light fanfare opening soundtrack, Mm -hmm. and nothing happens. There's not a soul in the ballpark. So Yankee Stadium is deserted. It looks like kind of a gray day in New York. It's it's not a happy time to be thinking about baseball. As the helicopter continues to circle the stadium, you see a satellite dish. You see a message board on the outside of the stadium. This is 1992. So there's literally no chance that this could be related to the story of Babe Ruth. When the opening credits finally finish... Mm-hmm. You never see Yankee Stadium again. You don't, not the quote unquote real Yankee Stadium. Yes, you, you see air quotes Yankee Stadium. But yeah, this, they got, so as you got closer, and you pointed this out when we were chatting earlier, they got closer and closer. I mean, Yankee Stadium in 1992 was before the new stadium. They hadn't really done much to it. It was not a stadium you wanted to get up close and personal to, especially when it was empty. If there were fans in the stands, that would have been different. They would have been better off animating the whole thing to look like old-timey Yankee Stadium. This was like, okay, it's like getting too close to, oh, too close, no, pull back, pull back, pull back. But at one point you see a liquid spill in the yes, in the seats that it's flying yep. over. And it's like, it's they didn't even clean the stadium. It looks disgusting. Come on. It was also not a not a not a beautifully sun, sunny day there. It just it was just it was they would have been better off with the stock photo. <laughs> it was yeah, or, or a baseball card montage or, mm-hmm. you know, there's so many ways you could have eased into this movie or or plunked straight into it. But instead, there's this weirdly indifferent aerial shot. And if we just talk about the aerial shot for the, the whole podcast, then we have. We have failed just as the movie The Babe has failed. So we'll we'll move on. But it kind of sets up <laughs> the tone for the entire movie in a, in a certain way. So Omen's I think that, importance. Oh, for sure. Okay, so then we go from this very long opening credit to an orphanage in Maryland. And you know it's old-timey because there's fog. So that's how you know that something... I mean, there's always... Especially that kind of fog that looks like it comes from dry ice. Dracula fog is how Exactly. Like we were in London, 1850 or something. Jack the Ripper stalks the Ruth family. <laughs> so uh, we're, our, we're already making this movie better than, than it ever could possibly be. Ever could possibly. And, and did we mention that it's just slightly over two hours long? Oh, see, again, I think we might have watched different movies because the one I watched was about 12 hours long. (laughs) It was just a slog and a half. We'll uh, dive more into how you could take the life of such a baseball legend and make it really insufferable. So anyway, we're at the orphanage, right? And he gets dragged into the orphanage by his brother because he's a handful. He's a bad kid. And he gets handed over to the the Catholic brothers in the orphanage. And there's a foreshadowing because our boy James Cromwell, who plays Brother Matthias, he's holding a baseball. And then he proceeds to hit Babe Ruth with that baseball bat and clock him pretty darn hard, which I think must have established Babe Ruth's lifelong love of baseball. (laughs) There was a lot of violence in this movie in this movie in the beginning scenes with the kids like not not the adult I mean there's some violence with the adults but there was a lot of violence in the first few minutes of this movie yeah I, I actually in my notes I wrote a searing indictment of the church oh yeah which was really the maker's intent of this movie it's like let's baseball's okay but what about taking on religion well you know it's an orphanage so everyone gets beaten up at an orphanage I didn't see what they were eating was there gruel I did not see gruel, but I assume they were eating gruel. Probably. Baltimore, 1902. Yeah. Definitely gruel. Definitely gruel. Then we have our our boy, Babe, who is getting beaten up for, I don't know, just being 
just being a kid. Suddenly, oh, no, he, he got beat up because he didn't know how to use scissors. Oh, that's right. I, I also sc- made a note scissors. of that. I Babe forgot Ruth, about that. He didn't know how to use scissors. <laughs> Babe Ruth couldn't use scissors, and so kids beat him up. And then the priests beat him up as well. Right, right. And he was using, I noticed he was using the scissors with the left hand. And I wondered if he actually did write with his with his left hand, because I know that my grandfather, who was alive during this period of time, was left-handed, but also went to Catholic schools with the nuns, and he was basically beaten out of him that he had to write with his right hand. So he did everything else with his left hand except write or, you know, use scissors or whatever. So I was wondering about the accuracy of that as well, because if he was raised in any type of Catholic organization, you know, that left hand, that's the devil's hand. Can't use it. Except in baseball, of course. I think then we, uh, he goes out and plays baseball Mm -hmm. in the churchyard and brother Matthias is pitching, which is good because when brother Matthias is batting, he hits kids. Yes, exactly. Well, you know, that's why the bat is dual purpose. Yes. Brother Matthias throws him one pitch and he swings mightily and falls down and the kids laugh at him, probably thinking of the scissors and, and whatnot. The second pitch Babe Ruth ever sees. Yep. Flies over the fence. Amazing. I, yeah. And I think it hit a horse. Did you notice that? I think it did. I, I heard did. like a whinny after the ball disappeared out of sight. So I don't know why they would put that in on a foley mm-hmm. for ad- added sound effect. You could just have it plunk down, but nope, it had to hit nope. an animal. Well, yeah, that's for great dramatic effect, for sure. But I think the other thing I wanted to, to bring up was the word incorrigible. Oh, yeah. Spoiler. Spoiler, because that comes up quite a bit in this movie. It's, you know, he gets called incorrigible, and that is just the pinnacle of bad. And just for the folks at home, what does incorrigible mean? I looked it up just so you know. It means incapable of being corrected or amended, depraved, delinquent, not manageable, unruly. So the babe is, a young babe Ruth is told that he is incorrigible, sort of like this movie. <laughs> Don't tell the movie that or the, the movie will go off on you later at a pivotal moment. Uh, it might, it might. Anyway, the young babe, he's a, he's a natural, right? He's, he's a natural. Second pitch, he's able to just knock it and kill a horse. I just thought the horse was hit, but I, I like where you're going with this because I think this is, is becoming more interesting. I, I'm sure no horses were killed in the making of this movie, perhaps a few careers, but not any horses. You orphans are eating well tonight. Lucky for you <laughs> that Babe has struck down a mighty steed. Horse meat for everyone. Mm. <laughs> okay, so then you know, we get into the fact that the babe can play baseball, right? So we see a young babe, Ruth, 12 years later, playing baseball the way he's meant to play. And they keep talking about his size. So I feel like this this movie was like one giant fat joke. I mean, there were more fat jokes in this movie than... I felt like at least every other scene had someone was making a some type of, of derogatory comment about how big and fat he was. And this one, he's like, the kid's the size of Mount Vesuvius. But the thing was, if you look at photos of a young babe, Ruth, which I'm sure you have, he wasn't that fat. Yeah, I, I think I would I would describe him and, and, and with all good in, intentions here, I would, I would describe him as chonky. Yeah, chonky, but like still not like this big, giant barrel of a man but then of course we'll, we'll we'll jump into the fact that we can go from him being 12 to him being 30 year old john goodman with yeah. a really bad prosthetic nose yeah and and so then i think in 1914 uh, he's showing off his skills and then mr dunn comes from the baltimore orioles and he's coming to make a deal with the brothers because apparently babe ruth is under contract with the orphanage i i didn't know that you could do that but yeah you know, there, there seems to be sense. some sort of weird indentured servitude but the orioles and this will come as no surprise to anybody tracking the modern day orioles <laughs> oh i get to do i get to use the old-timey voice here go for it my team you see has gone down the johnny flusher <laughs> Because the Orioles have gone down the Johnny Flesher, apparently Mr. Dunn from the Orioles is willing to make a deal with the devil or with or with the brothers to get Babe Ruth out of the orphanage. And 
even though he's 19 years old, apparently he can't leave or be adopted. Yeah, I didn't really understand how that worked. And I was also very confused because then it was John Goodman and he was like a 30 some odd year old man, even though he wasn't supposed to be. So that kind of confused me. I'm like, where are we at at this movie? Oh, okay. Oh, no, that was a moment of absolute terror for me. I really did have the breath sucked out of me. Mm-hmm. When up until this point, you've seen him as a kid, you've seen Babe as a kid, or you've seen him in the distance. Yep. And then suddenly, when the Orioles, in the attempt to get out of the Johnny Flesher, sign him up and he leaves the orphanage at age 19, you see this hulking man-child with a, a look of abject horror on his own face. John Goodman, that's the first time you see him in, as the character of Babe Ruth, and he looks stricken. Mm-hmm. And then I was stricken. I'm like, what? what is happening? He is 40 years old, <laughs> and he's playing a 19-year-old, and I think there was a little bit of makeup. He looked a little like, sort of ruby red. Mm-hmm. and not much else. Yeah, so I, I freaked out. He And he did not speak at that moment because I think if he were to speak, he might unleash evil upon the world. <laughs> and I just also thought, like, once you got to adult Babe, it was like as if they reimagined Babe Ruth as a goofy cartoon bear who was always drunk. That's what yeah. that re- reminded me. A drunken cartoon bear played by John Goodman. I want to do a quick shout out to the 1994 film Clifford, starring Charles Grodin, the late, great Charles Grodin, mm-hmm. and, and Martin Short, who was also 40 years old at the time, who played a 10-year-old boy who went to go stay with his uncle, Charles Grodin. Now, it's Martin Short, so you know that it's obviously yeah. going to be wacky hijinks and, and, and whatever, but Martin Short sells the whole thing of him playing a 10-year-old as a 40-year-old. John Goodman, when he sort of inches towards the camera looking like totally deer in the headlights, you just want to leave this movie immediately. So Clifford was warm and funny and weird and wacky and the babe, it just felt like when you see this age mismatch, it's not going to ever get any better. No. Spoiler, it doesn't. I mean, and, and I thought, well, maybe he's trying to play him as if he were a kid. That's why he's so goofy and and naive. When you look like a 40-year-old grown man and you're playing it like that, it it's not a good look. It's not creep, a good look. Creep creep show, yeah. It was very creepy and also like what what is also, I mean, the gum chewing. Can we I mean I know we haven't even gotten to a <laughs> but the gum chewing, the incessant gum chewing that goes on in this movie, I didn't really understand that either. There was no product placement for like Wrigley's spearmint gum or anything like that. Or would what they what is that what they would have been chewing back then? Or is it a clove I, gum? What, what what was you had a you had a lot of Wrigley options. You had the Adams uh, blackjack would have would have been a choice. I do think there was a anti-product placement. I have a little bit of a theory because oh. do you notice one thing that they just totally bag on throughout the movie? It's smoking. Oh, that is very true. There's a lot of cigar smoking, and there's also a lot of tobacco chewing, which it seemed like no one could clean their chin from tobacco juice. So I guess that people just spit all over themselves back in the day as opposed to easily yeah. spitting it in a, <laughs> on the ground. But yeah, there's a lot of tobacco dribble on pitchers' chins in this, this movie. I didn't quite understand what was going on with but- that. In the meeting with the Orioles guy, right. one of the brothers says something very strange, that he was a lad who didn't have a smoke until he was six and a drink until he was seven. I thought, what a just a weird freaking thing to say when you're trying to cover a 40-year career and it's like, let's dwell on the fact that he didn't have a smoke until he was six. But I, I feel like that there was some weird anti-smoking vibes. Well, there had to be some weird anti-something in this movie. There are several PC issues in this this movie, which you can tell it was made in 1992. But anyway, so he gets sold to the Orioles. And where do we go from there? I know there are a lot of fat jokes. Oh, well, so, of course, we never see him play for the Orioles. All of a sudden, he is now playing for the Boston Red Sox, which is where most people believe that the Babe Ruth story starts. And that's fine, because I think he was with the Orioles for just a matter of weeks. You see him playing with Boston. I made a note of this, too, because every physical thing that John Goodman did started to stress me out. 
The first thing that he says is a strangled sounding, hey, kind of like Fred Flintstone meeting the Kool-Aid man. I forgot he played Fred Flintstone, actually. Yeah, he was, I think he was warming up for the, for the bedrock call up after the babe. So Babe Ruth homers in this early game for the Red Sox. And at one point they cut away and they showed the Boston owner and he looks kind of pissed. Yeah, I didn't understand that. I also thought it was interesting, and I I guess most people know Ruth as a hitter, but I just thought it was interesting that they started off with him as a hitter because he did have a pretty storied career as a pitcher with Boston, which they eventually get to, but I just, I thought it would be, if you were trying to tell his story, you should have had it in there. They could have had the pitching and then the hitting, but they just showed him hitting. And I thought, to me, that was... Okay, we're just going to jump to that. I thought they were going to cut it out entirely. I'm like, are they never going to show that he was a pitcher? Whatever. That was the way they decided to go. Jackie, you know who is a horrible pitcher? Who is? John Goodman. (laughs) Yeah. Because I started thinking about this. The first, we see Babe Ruth running the bases, and it's this weird sort of three-legged race, ankle-to-ankle shuffle. Uh-huh. Could not have humanly run like that. I went back and looked at footage of Babe Ruth, and he did not run like that. But the pitching scenes, you never see John Goodman throw a complete pitch. You see him wind up, and he's got this weird, freaky sidearm delivery, and they mm-hmm. they frame it tightly so you don't see his whole arm. And then before he releases the pitch, they cut away. I think John Goodman actually couldn't play baseball. Yet another casting problem with this movie that seems to have any number of casting problems. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I mean, can, can we talk about, you were talking about the way he runs. Can we talk about the fact, and we still haven't even gotten into the heart of this movie when they would do the old timey clips of them running, they would, they basically recreated like old timey clips of the games. And then they would have them run like really weird and sort of, instead of making the film look like old timey with the, with the time, they made the, the actual actors kind of move in that weird stilted way that the film looked. I did not understand that. He looked like he was kind of tiptoeing around the bases quickly. Yes. So I didn't, I did. So I, it, it was just, yeah, I did. I did not understand it. I feel like in 1992, they still had the technology to make new film look like old film. Yeah. It's not that hard. You know what, Jackie, I think John Goodman had his eye on the prize. He was thinking, how am I going to drive that car with my feet through bedrock? <laughs> I bet if I run this way, and we'll just say that Babe Ruth ran like he was driving a Flintstones car, who's going to notice? That's my theory. I'm going to stick with that one. So then we get to him being, you know, kind of the toast of of Boston, right? So he's he's doing well. He's, He's wooing his future bride. But then there's also a little bit of he's the fat guy, right? He's he buys a hot dog when he gets off the playing field and he takes and then he had that weird scene where he kind of puts his his leg up like his gam up on the, the seats and he puts his leg up and takes his money out to buy hot dogs. I'm like for all the kids in the for stand. all the kids. Well, yeah. And he keeps his money apparently in his sock while he's playing. Where are we? We he's in he's he's in Boston. We meet the scarecrow. Oh, I'm sorry. Bruce Foxleitner. That's right. That's right. Who plays Jumpin' Joe Dugan, who I believe is a real person, but I couldn't have told you anything about Jumpin' Joe Dugan before this movie. Now what do you know? That he was there to answer Babe Ruth's questions (laughs) about the big leagues, the big city, and everything else that was big. That's right. I, I think it was the closest thing they could do as a male bestie. Because he didn't, it didn't seem like he had a lot of friends, which I also find that kind of hard to believe. A super gregarious guy like that. Yeah. That nobody would talk to him. Jumpin' Joe does lecture him. He says, I don't want to hear you talking about liking hitting home runs, which I thought was just a queer thing to say because he's already got a reputation after just a few weeks of being a slugger. If you like to hit home runs, that's awesome. Well, it wasn't a home run game back then, right? Yeah, whatever. I mean, but still. Old-timey small ball. There you go. Old-timey small ball. Somewhere in in here, he meets the woman who's going to be his wife, right? She's a waitress. I mean, the worst flirt ever. I don't know why any woman would end up with him. Really don't understand. (laughs) There's a very weird tangle because you actually meet his future, future wife, at the mm-hmm. same time that you meet his future wife. That's right. And I was kind of confused because I was like, wait, Kelly McGillis is the, okay, she's the second, going to be the second wife. 
Yes. Yeah, I know. I was confused. I'm like, I think that's Kelly McGillis. And I thought maybe is that like a throwaway for her? But she had top, but she had a top, you know, pretty high billing. So I'm like, there must be more of her in this movie. I feel like they had to invent some story for her because they kept referring to it as a, as a Zigfield Follies girl, but I yep. I could find no evidence that she actually was. No, I think she was unlike the his first wife, the sweet girl, the farm girl. She she was a little bit been about town, had traveled. I think she was more worldly than the first wife. But yes, they, they meet they meet at a snobs versus slob event, a fancy okay. dinner party where Babe Ruth comes up to her and says, "I've never seen a lady smoke before." That's right. That's right. Is that where the champagne drinking contest takes place? I think that comes just a little bit later because, of okay. course, you want to overemphasize that Babe Ruth drank a lot and then overdid it a lot. Right, right. Because there was a, the champagne contest and he had dinner rolls in his pockets because he's a fat guy, apparently. Right. That's what fat guys do. They That's go to the what? buffet. That's right. They go to the Sizzler and it, <laughs> it's all over. But then he leaves this fancy party mm-hmm. and he puts a dozen kids on his jalopy. Yep. To go woo his first future first wife he goes up to her kind of harassing her from the street and he says i like you and she replies with the fantastic line ah banana, banana oil I, I highlighted that i'm going to use that from now on when someone I, can be like, ah banana oil this is the first bright spot in this movie and i think we're now 20 minutes in at least yep but yeah i i do want to bring back the phrase ah banana oil there were some great lines in this movie delivered horribly. I have a lot of problems with the script overall, but I have even, I have equal problems with the delivery of the the script. No one is selling anything here. I think they're all phoning it in. They know that this is a steaming pile of garbage and they just have to get through it. That's my theory. I mean, some of these actors are are way too good to thought that this was going to be a great movie. There's really no way that you can sell this. He does his best to woo Helen, who's played by Trini Alvarado, who, I don't know, she is just sort of, she's biding time here. (laughs) And then they kind of go on As as an actress or just in the movie? (laughs) Yes. The character in the movie. Yes. And then they go on a creepy date rapey boat ride. Yes. Can we talk about that? Can we talk about how that was just so wrong in so many ways where he's like, I want to kiss you. And she's like, "Ah, no, no, I'm I'm saving myself for marriage. Basically, no man's going to kiss me. And then he comes up with the genius line of there's a bug. There's a bug over there. And then the next thing, you know, he goes and and he kisses her like what? Like, what? This is incredibly date rapey. And then they both fall in the water after that, or he falls in the water. Well, okay. They both fall in the water. I, I don't, I don't want to short Trini Alvarado's big speech because she resists. She does. Babe Ruth. And she says, I am not one of those girls who waits outside of the locker room. I am not one of those girls who smokes. <gasps> And then she walks out of the boat. You know, as you would do. I mean, honestly, I would have walked out of that boat, too. And then she calls him a big anchovy. I'm still, I think banana oil is still my winner so far. But a a big anchovy is pretty good. Yeah, big anchovy is pretty good. So then he falls out of the boat and he pretends like he's drowning. I don't know if he was actually drowning. So she gets concerned that maybe he actually is drowning. And she goes in the water. Of course, he pops up and then he kisses her. And then she's laughing. And suddenly it's cool, right? It's cool now that he was just being a totally complete jerk because he wanted to kiss her. Seems like a great way to start a relationship. Super creepy. Jackie, one of the things that I thought of a lot as I was watching this movie was the song White Lines, Don't Do It. You remember that one? I do. Running through my mind. The unabashed hip-hop classic from 1983. Oh, yeah. Which I, I And I learned. This is, so the babe, watching the babe taught me something. I always thought it was Grandmaster Flash. Mm-hmm. But but it was actually Grandmaster Melly Mel from Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. It was the solo record. But their labels sort of fiddled with the truth to make it look like maybe it was a Grandmaster Flash record. So, you know, kind of like the movie of the babe. History is kind of at liberty here. Things are a little weird. But I'm actually not talking about the original. I'm actually talking about the cover of White Lines by Duran Duran from 1995. 
Mm-hmm. Which which actually does feature Grandmaster Flash. So good for Duran Duran for actually bringing back the the old school masters. Now I love Duran Duran. I love old school hip hop. I love this song, the original version of the song. But D squared's version of this old school hip hop track is awful. It's ridiculous. It's bombastic and it's weird. And I love it even more. Bombastic. It's I like fan- that song too. It's fantastic because it's done with such love and affection that it makes you root for these fey English white boys who have no business covering an old school jam. Honestly, Jackie, I'm going to work really hard to redirect the conversation today back to Duran Duran because it's really, really hard to keep talking about 1992's The Babe starring John Goodman. But I am going somewhere with this. Don't worry. I, I'm waiting for it. I mean, we're, we've gone on a tangent a little. I feel like I'm um, maybe in the car with Babe and we're heading back to the bar. I, I actually have uh, the lyrics printed out if you want to do call and response with me. If I don't want you to forget rang, dang, diggity, dang, dang. Rang, dang, diggity, dang, dang. So here's the deal. Here's where I'm going with all of this. Okay. I love Babe Ruth. Maybe not as much as I love Hank Aaron, but Babe Ruth is Babe Ruth. Arthur Hiller, the director of The Babe, mm-hmm. he directed one of my favorite movies of all time. In fact, I didn't even realize that Arthur Hiller directed this until I had to go back and kind of dig into it. But Arthur Hiller directed The In-Laws ah, with Alan Arkin and yeah. Peter Falk. It's yep. like one of the great latter era screwball comedies. So good. And John Goodman. I mean, we've already talked about John Goodman. Who doesn't love John Goodman? Even though we hate this movie. We still love John Goodman. He's funny. He's lo- charming. He's lovable. He's brilliant. So, yeah, the studio is like, let's green light this biopic. Do I, you say biopic or biopic? I say biopic, but... I, I like biopic. Biopic sounds fancier. It does sound fancier, but it could be biopic. Yeah, so we're going to green light a biopic about Babe Ruth, directed by Arthur Hiller, starring John Goodman. It's going to be great, right? Quality. And sure, Arthur Hiller's coming off of See No Evil, Hear No Evil, the film that unraveled the classic Gene Wilder-Richard Pryor partnership. And he also directed Taking Care of Business, a Jim Belushi baseball-adjacent movie, which we may have I'm, to put into the film festival. I, we will definitely have to put it into the queue. And sure, I think John Goodman is thinking a lot about Fred Flintstone at this point and not so much about Babe Ruth. I mean, it does make a lot of sense that he is Fred Flintstone playing Babe Ruth. That would actually make a lot more sense. So maybe it's not going to be quality, but based on all of these ingredients, maybe it's going to be Duran Duran white lines amazing, right? But, well, of course Mm -hmm. not, because this is just a slog. It's We're grinding through this movie about this baseball legend there's no love, there's no joy, there's no fun in any of this. It's just like, let's just go from Boston to New York, back to Boston, and then then he can die. It just feels like they are literally just checking stuff off of a checkbox. I don't know who to blame for this, although I did find that the missing ingredient, the one person I did not know that was involved with this movie is a guy called John Fusco, who's the screenwriter. Okay. Mm-hmm who was the screenwriter of Crossroads, a great Ralph Macchio and Jamie Gertz picture. Oh, Jamie Gertz. And he was also responsible for Young Guns 1 and Young Guns 2. Mm. But I don't think you can put it, you can never put it on the screenwriter, right? Because they they always take the script and do whatever the heck they want. So this one's going to be on the director and I think some of the acting performances. So I'm not, I'm not ready to, I mean, it's not a great script, but it's not a great anything. There's a lot of partying going on in their New York apartment, and Helen is not does not like the New York ways. There are people having sex in her bathtub, which, you know, in fairness, I don't want people having sex in my bathtub either. Yeah, shower yeah. is fine, but bathtub, that's, uh, that's off limits. And then we get to see Babe's great pull my finger joke that he does throughout the... The, the first, the first of the many. The first of many pull my finger jokes. And so he- Helen is not happy. Babe is the toast of New York. He's hitting speakeasies. He's buying shoes for kids. And then Kelly McGillis, enter Kelly McGillis yet again, Zigfield Folly's girl. There's also a pivotal moment in the scene when he has having his little tryst with Kelly McGillis, where the manager is banging, banging, banging on, on the door. And he's like, well, get out of here. And that's when we find out the babe's dream is he wants to be the manager. He wants to be the one who knocks on the doors and makes sure that people are asleep. Because that's what being a baseball manager is all about. 
when I think of Tommy Lasorda, one of the great all-time managers, that's pretty much all he did was to tuck people in. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't have minded being tucked in by time, Tommy Lasorda or Joe Torrey. <laughs> <laughs> Probably some very salty bedtime stories. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. This is the big Hollywood reveal, right? Well, mm-hmm. babe, it's not just baseball. What's your dream? You've got to... I know you believe in something. I know you're fighting for something, babe. Oh, I, I just, I want to be a manager. I want to make sure that people are sleeping. Yep. Yeah. Not because I love the game so much. I love the strategy of the game. I love bringing the team together, helping construct the lineup. Nope. He just wants to tell people they should be in bed. But there's also another uh, another great line in there, too, when I think Kelly McGillis are talking about his wife and he turns around to, to her and says, we took the vows, sis. We took the vows. So it's like, I'm not divorcing you. I'll sleep with you. I'll cheat on her. But yeah, I got to go back to her because we took the vows. Could you say that with gum in your mouth? Because I think that makes it that <laughs> makes it more realistic. It does. I should. We, I actually I should have. We took the vows, sis. Very nice. Very nicely done. Nicely done. Because that's what he sounds like throughout the entire movie. Like he's got cotton in his mouth. He obviously has gum or sometimes he has chaw in his mouth, too, because there are a few scenes with that. So I love how he make tries to make up with his wife. Like what? Like he brings her presents. At one point, he brought her horses. Yep. And this time, though, he doesn't bring her horses. He one ups it. Yeah, because he because Hel- Hel- Helen has a dream too, Jackie. Of course, it's not yes. just that Babe Ruth wants to be a manager. Helen wants to have a baby. So what does he do? He brings a baby, and of course, a black nanny. Yeah, um, because you know you can't can't have a baby without a black nanny with that baby. So yeah, so he comes home and brings her a baby because what woman does not want to be surprised with a child? You wanted a baby? I got you a baby. No contracts. Nobody knows. <laughs> I mean, that's true. Where did he get this baby? But I don't know. I guess back then you just went to an orphanage and say, said, I'll take that one over in the, in the back. <laughs> right. Corner left, please. Corner left. Take that one. I, I do also like that how he describes the baby. He says, it smells just like a new puppy. <laughs> yep. <laughs> sure. <laughs> The love triangle starts to squeeze a little tighter after this because we go to a Yankees-White Sox game sometime in the late 1910s. Oh, no, Claire is sitting very near Helen, but I don't believe they know each other or talk to each other, you know, whatever. Claire, well, Claire obviously knows of her, but I'm pretty sure Helen probably knows some, something's up. I mean, the oh, Helen, Helen, yeah. Claire obviously knows that uh, they, they took the vows, sis. They took the vows, sis. <laughs> We meet one of the first members of the Montreal Expos at this point. And by expo, I mean exposition, because the radio announcer starts filling in plot holes by just reading it into his microphone. There there was a lot of like, they felt compelled to shove in a lot of different things that went on in the babe's life. But it was almost like, okay, got to plaster that on the wall and then we'll kind of like the, the transitions were not smooth in here. So instead of just cutting things out like they normally do and in, in these type of movies, because you can't have everything in there. They just would just like you said, they would just kind of shove it in there and you're like, wait, what? And then you suddenly were in another scene. Because the announcer says something. I did not write this down verbatim, but he says something. But Babe Ruth does a slap hit, bounces the ball off of the infield. And then the announcer's calmly says, oh, it's the first infield home run in the history of baseball. If I was yep. calling this game live, I would be like, what just happened? Babe slapped it into the ground. Then he's running. These, and blah, you know, all this mm-hmm. manic excitement. It's like, nope, the first infield home run in the history of baseball. And you were there. I felt like a lot of big moments like that were kind of just up. Oh. Here we go. That happened. Let's check that off the Babe Ruth lifetime timeline here. Let's make sure. Okay, we hit that point. We hit that point. All right. We're all right. Where are we? Yeah. Is it time for well, the dying? Are we? T- is it time for the dying boy yet? Yeah. If you're playing bingo along with us at home, and we probably should be making this into bingo cards. If you have the sick kid who wants a home run, get ready to mark your box titled "Little Johnny Sylvester." Yep. It is time. It is time for Johnny. This is a mythical story that is real to some degree, but not as it was presented in the movie. Or normally not as it's presented in general. So I will not totally fault the movie for 
getting this wrong because there were a number of things they got wrong. Normally, this in general, this this is the whole mythos behind this has definitely gotten gotten blown up. I think most people are familiar with the the story that Babe Ruth went to visit a sick kid in the hospital, and he said he'd hit the kid a home run at his next game. Then the kid asks for him to hit a second home run. This little kid that plays Johnny Sylvester, sorry, little Johnny Sylvester, has this weird vibe to him, and it's looking like he is all about the guilt trip and making Babe Ruth feel bad about everything and that he has to hit two home runs. It's not an inspiring moment at all. It's kind of creepy. And the kid doesn't say anything. No, he he doesn't talk. Why doesn't the kid talk? (laughs) It's because he might've had a back problem, blood poisoning, sinus condition, or a spinal infection from falling off a horse. That's what I've been able to, to look up. Yeah. I didn't know he fell off something. I wasn't sure if it was a horse or a bicycle. This little sick kid who I feel bad about making fun of, but he was a fictional little sick kid, little Johnny Sylvester, gets Babe Ruth to hit two home runs for him. And yet again, another miracle by Babe Ruth, which is now these miracles are kind of getting devalued as we slog through this movie. For sure. They did make it into the big, big moment that it was, right? They did have the announcer building up tension. You have the kids around the radio. You get, you kind of get that, and, it, and they're chanting, Bambino, Bambino, Bambino. And I think in the second home run, is that the one that breaks the window wherever the heck they, you know, it breaks the window? It breaks the he, window right where the kids, the little the kids wastrels are listening, are listening on, on the street. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, of course, perfect and positioning. There's a tonal shift in the movie, too, which tells me that no one's really thinking any of this through. Because I feel like somebody from the studio visited and said... Are we getting the, the the natural kind of vibe here? Feel the dreams kind of vibe? Can we do some more of that? Because all of a sudden you get this grandiose music. Yep. And the, the home run trots are now in slow motion as opposed to the sped up newsreel style. And it's just a bigger mess as we go along. Definitely changes tone from this big buffoon who, you know, can you believe, look at him. He's like... He can, he can do all these feats, but he's just such an idiot. Now, suddenly, he's a hero, right? He's, he's hitting home runs for sick kids, you know, where before he was killing horses. <laughs> Is this now where we, we go to New Orleans? And he's wearing a fur coat. So there's a lot of fur coat wearing that goes on as well. And like also, I don't know why you'd wear a fur coat in New Orleans. There's probably two days out of the year you can wear a fur coat in New Orleans, but that's a whole other issue. <laughs> We're going to get back to Babe Ruth and drag a little bit later. So maybe there's a, there's a little bit of vibe here. But yes, New Orleans spring training. We have a montage we to do. show to the world that constant drinking and overeating is paying off. <laughs> Even though his manager will disagree and has is given him the business. Apparently, Babe Ruth can literally do whatever he wants and he's getting the job done. So right. keep keep eating the hot dogs, keep smoking the cigars, keep doing what you're doing. Can I give a little call out? There is a little person who plays a bat boy yes. in this movie. So that there is that. The little person actor who is playing like a, I don't want to say bat boy because he's a man. He's a bit of a valet to Babe yeah, Ruth. Yeah, he's kind of a valet to Babe Ruth. But he's also, I, I mean, and he's with the team and he's in uniform. But he's played by an actor of, of some note who just recently passed away. His name is Stevie Lee. And he was in the Jackass movie and was a wrestler of some note. He was known as Puppet the Psycho Dwarf. Yes. There you go. The puppet was, was in the Babe Ruth movie. And this was, and even he, like what I found his obituary, there was no mention of it in that obituary. And why would you? I think most people are omitting this from their credits. And hats off to IMDb for keeping everybody honest here. It's true. And, and we are going to, at some point in the future, because we've found some distressing stories of quote unquote good luck charms for old timey baseball teams where they've had little people, people who were injured in car accidents and then brought onto the field and people would rub their lucky hunchback or something. It's like, it's amazing. So stay tuned for that folks. And that's what I thought of when I saw it. I thought of our dis- our discussion that we had where, yes, they would use people who had physical disabilities or were down on their luck, and they were basically considered mascots, good luck charms, until they weren't anymore. So that's why I was like, oh, 
there's this little person who is following him around with his, I don't know, bromicide, what, what was it called? Alka-Seltzer. Uh, <laughs> and was like his valet. But when he was just kind of a throwaway in there too, it's like, okay, of course, we've got like a little guy in this in this as well. You know, I'm, I'm surprised that Babe Ruth didn't pick him up and carry him around. That was the only thing that was missing. I, I think probably the only limitation was John Goodman's physicality did not allow for that. Probably not. Well, we got to leave spring training and go back to New York, but we got one hell of a train ride ahead of yes, us. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Lots going on. What was he? He's wearing, what was he wearing? Were they pajamas? Like, so Babe Ruth is making ribs, cooking in this train car, which, you know, whatever. But he's wearing like this sleeveless shirt and shorts. And I'm like, are those pajamas, basically? I'm assuming. I don't know what else they could have been. Caveman Halloween costume. I don't know. They were like culottes and what? <laughs> But yeah, so he's cooking, he's and he's being his usual like, oafish self. He gets into a fight with his wife, who is like, what's going on here? You got all these people in here. And she, what does she do? She says, I used to resent your parents that they put you in a home. I couldn't understand how they could do that to you. But you know what? You are incorrigible. <gasps> the, the I word. She uses the, the I word. word. Trigger warning. Only if you're Babe Ruth. Total trigger. Total sets him off. So he trashes the train. He trashes his train car. The ribs are all everywhere. The beer is spilled. Helen walks out of a moving train. Now, she has walked off of a boat in the middle of a lake before. So why not a moving but train? But to her credit, she goes through the door, which connects to other cars. But you hear her telling the conductor, it's like, I want to get off. But they've already left the station. I have no idea. We never see Helen again. Well, not really, yeah. That's it for Trini Alvarado. Suddenly, here comes Miller Huggins, the Yankees manager, who's already been beefing with Babe Ruth for overdoing it and not being a team player, et cetera, et cetera. Because Babe Ruth has been severely triggered by the I word, he grabs his manager and throws him over the caboose, the railing of the caboose of the train and dangles him over the tracks until his manager promises not to fine him. But not necessarily not to charge him with attempted murder. You hear Miller Huggins screaming, no fine, no fine. And then you cut immediately to a newsreel saying he got a fine and a suspension. Mm -hmm. I like the legal parsing of this. It's true. No fine. Fine and suspension. Different story. Totally different. This is the beginning of the end for Babe Ruth, yeah, right? Now, we, now it's we, time to circle the drain. We see him become just a, a train wreck without the train actually wrecking because that would be too expensive for this movie. Somewhere in there, he gets married to Claire. He never actually, in real life, he never actually divorces his first wife. So this is where the movie actually, besides its horrible portrayal of all the people in this crap fest, this is where the movie kind of takes liberties. He was not, he did not marry Claire at this point because he was still married to Helen. So that, that couldn't have happened. We see him slump and this is where everything changes for him. I think at some point you hear that Claire died in a fire. You do. So that was another thing. That was actually another point that I, I love that they also just kind of, so they're at Thanksgiving dinner and he gets a call and he's looking all sullen. And I think it had something to do with maybe his contract or whether or not he was going to eventually be able to, to manage. And he picks up the phone and then they cut to a, a, a cliff, right? It's supposed to be a, a, a news clip of his wife dying in a fire. That's actually true. She did die in a fire. She, she was residing in a house with a dentist at the time, a one Ooh. Edward H. Kinder, because her and Babe were separated, but they were not divorced. But the neighbors knew her as Mrs. Kinder, thought she was actually married to the dentist that she had been living with and had no idea she was Babe Ruth's wife. After she died in the fire, though, that's when he marries Claire. They just kind of took this out of order. Not okay. really sure why. It reminds me of one of my favorite Simpsons moments when Homer gets a job as Poochie on the Itchy and Scratchy show, and they're desperate to write off his character. And so they literally freeze the frame and write on the screen, Poochie died on the way back to his home planet. <laughs> and and I, I think they couldn't get rid of, of Helen fast enough. And so they just they put the newsreel clip up that says she died in a fire. Too bad. Whether this had an impact on Babe or not, I, I think it was just the excess that was getting to him. He is in a major, major slump. He's now jealous of Lou Gehrig, who is the up-and-coming new hot Yankee. and Iron he, Horse. The Iron Horse. 
and he is looking for a way to fire up his game. I don't know. He's I think he's getting a little desperate. You see, you see the rot sinking in. It's been three years since the rib and beer party on the train. Babe Ruth hits a switch hit single, which was weird. I didn't I didn't know he could switch hit. So I, I guess I, I didn't know either. Big old Babe Ruth stretches that single into a double and it's thrown out for bad base running. He throws dirt on the umpire. They throw him out of the game and the fans turn on him. That's right. And then he turns on the fans and he jumps into the stand with a bat and tries to beat the crap out of somebody. And the movie is suddenly shot like King Kong. You see all of the camera angles are pointing upwards to John Goodman, who's towering over everybody and just looking like a maniac. And then he's tackled and subdued on the dugout roof because he's clearly out of control. Mm -hmm. And then... I thought he died. I mean, he looked like he was near death at that point. He had a strange pallor. He just, I don't know what they were the doing with his color. Makeup. Yeah, the color in his face shifted in the scene. And I don't know that yeah. it was special effects, but it was just like, oh my God, did he? He didn't die in a game, did he? <laughs> no, he did not. He did not. But it, it certainly felt like that was a, that scene was a really weird, disturbing scene on so many levels. And I, it is based on reality, but I feel like this was really oddly done, really oddly done. But King Kong is a good analogy. He clearly has a, a mental break at this point. Something, something snapped in him. He gets drunk. He hides in the sub-basement of the stadium. I, can't I couldn't quite... figure out where he was either. I had they... no idea. He was by a chain link fence or something. Yeah, they pull like a secret panel away and, and there he is. And it's, and Kelly, it's Kelly McGillis and, and Bruce Boxleitner go in. They put him into the shower and his teammate Jumpin' Joe then graciously just walks away Yep, and leaves it for... Kelly McGillis to solve, but luckily, and there's not enough of this in baseball movies, Jackie, correct me if I'm wrong, but for the love of a good woman, Mm -hmm. Babe Ruth finally saw the light. That's right. And then Kelly McGillis joined the Montreal Expos because all of a sudden she starts throwing out exposition right and left. She says, you got two speeds, fast and stop. You got to slow down. (laughs) Uh Oh, some great, great, great quotes in there. (laughs) So then you say sobering up montage oh i think that's when they get married yes well no i thought they got married i thought they got married earlier yeah this was in hour eight of the movie so i've kind of lost i don't know i mean i could be wrong too because i know there there were definitely times when i was taking notes i looked down i missed something i'm like you know what i am not going to rewind this i'm just gonna keep powering through i can't i just i just can't we don't like babe ruth at this point he's he he seems entitled he seems like a jerk he seems he's a man child he's a he is fighting with his manager he is pissing all over his teammates I don't know that he hated Lou Gehrig or not, but there's a weird resentment. Who hates Lou Gehrig? I don't know. I, I don't know if there was an actual, there might have been a rivalry between the two. I did not look it up. It was one of the things I was going to look up. But I don't know how you could hate Lou Gehrig. He kept calling him Mama's Boy. So because this movie was filled with just bad name calling. And then there was a lot of jawing on the field, like a lot of people screaming back and forth to each other, you know, from the dugout on the field. I'm like, was there really that much talk going on on the field back then i i think we, i need to find footage and say what was really going on but because it was constant it was a con- it was a constant back and forth i need to bring up the babe talks about how he wants to manage he wants to be the manager Talking to Colonel Rupert, who, by the way, is has a giant apple and cheese plate in front of him during this scene. And I could not, for the life of me, figure out why. It's like this really very delicate-looking apple, apple slices and cheese in front of him. And he's eating it with a fork. Exactly. It was so strange. Is this something like, was this like a, a weird quirk of his that we don't know about? But it was just so incongruous to this, everything this, else that was going on. This was your Mr. Pitt moment, Mr. Pitt from Seinfeld who ate his Snickers bar with a fork and a knife. (laughs) So Colonel Rupert, the owner of the Yankees, apparently was a fancy lad who ate his apples and cheese and a lot of apples and cheese. A lot of apples. It was a Thanksgiving-sized relish tray, but apparently that was just for Colonel Rupert. It was just, he didn't offer any to the babe. It was on a very nice-looking crystal plate, but it was massive. So I even... I, I I had to like, wait, 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 I, I need to see, like, cause I, I kind of looked down and missed him. Like, did I just, yep. That is what I saw. Big apple and cheese plate. Colonel Rupert, who spoke with a, a 
charming sort of pre-World War II German accent. By, by the way, World War I didn't happen in this movie, even though it was a key part of the timeline. We cut out before World War II happens. Colonel Rupert, eating his fancy relish tray, says, clearly it's a moment of confrontation with his star player. He says, how can you manage a team when you can't manage yourself? And at that point, I said, yeah, that's a fair point, Colonel Rupert. You're right. He, uh, yeah, he's absolutely unsuitable to be a manager. He offers Babe Ruth the Newark minor league manager position. Babe Ruth refuses. It's below him. And he says, I want my release. And Colonel Rupert says, you're released. And he is now an ex-Yankee. Babe Ruth leaves dejectedly. And Claire walks in. Kelly McGillis comes in to give the colonel the business. And the colonel says, because I just want to do the German accent. That's all I really care about with this whole thing. I've just been building up to this. That, this okay. and the Duran Duran stuff. Okay. Your intrusion is not appreciated. Your approach is not acceptable. And our conversation is finished. At which point Kelly McGillis slaps him. Because says, this, this movie did need a good slap. I'm actually surprised that there were not more slaps in this movie. Yes, and she takes her final at bat for the Expos. She does. And she says, he saved baseball. You should kiss his ass. At this point, I don't care. Oh, you know, we we totally skipped over the whole, like, that he pointed to the to the outfield wall in the World Series. Yeah, we his, did skip his, that. His big That's epic fine. cold shot. But I, at this point, I don't That's care. Fine. All of his I, accomplishments I are, are totally devalued. What a mess. Definitely a mess. And I think Kelly McGillis, that she has a line in that, that scene too. You don't offer a captain a waiter's job. And then she slaps him. <laughs> and then there's the famous where he says, shame on you. And she says, no, shame on you. <laughs> the big pivot. The big pivot. All right, so let's let's see. Let's let's get through this. We're almost towards the end. Let's get let's get yep. to it. Let's do We're it. Back, going back to Boston. Going back to Boston, where Babe Ruth is now the player, quote unquote, manager of the Boston Braves. Not the Boston, not the Red Sox, but the Braves. That's right. My favorite character in the whole movie finally shows up. The old drunk guy. I Keep love the, the old change, drunk guy. You filthy animal. He's the guy from Home Alone. Was he? He's so in Home Alone, he's on the videotape that Kevin is watching. I think it's like Angels with Dirty Faces. And yes, I can't believe I remember that. He he plays the gangster and he plays that that line so he can scare away the robbers. And he's the guy because I remember I recognize his voice immediately. He's the keep the change, you filthy animals guy. Nice. Good catch. Thank you. I thought he was channeling Foster Brooks, the lovable lush. I mean, he might have been. That's where I knew him. It was the most exciting part of, of the end of the movie for me. The final member of the Montreal Expos that we meet is the old drunk guy because he is in the stands at the Braves game in Pittsburgh. And he is pestering the Ruth family. And he says, I've seen your daddy hit a lot of home runs, but he ain't never hit it over the fence here. Which obviously means that he won't hit it out of the fence there, right? Because No foreshadowing you know, here. Babe Ruth is then feeling disrespected. He hears his co-manager talk poorly about him. He goes into the clubhouse. He hears the owner of the Boston Braves say that he's just a figurehead. It's just a, a deep moment of shame. So Babe Ruth goes out and then miraculously hits three home runs, which he did, and then quits, which he did not do. Definitely did not. This was not his swan song. But the ending, are we ready to talk about the ending? Oh, go for it. Go for it. Oh, this is like, I love this ending because here we are in Pittsburgh, right? <laughs> We're walking through the tunnel to the locker room and a kid appears to give Mean Joe Green a Coke. <laughs> And then Mean Joe Green throws him his jersey and he said, here, kids, this is for you. Because that's basically this next scene. Mm -hmm. It a, really is basically the next scene. A young person walks into the tunnel of going to the locker room as Babe has turned his back on baseball. Like, figuratively, literally, all that good stuff. And but it's not just any young person in there. It's little Johnny Sylvester, all grown up. He's okay! He made it! He made it! Yay! And he gives Babe Ruth the ball that Babe Ruth autographed for him back to him. As yeah. if to say, I don't want this anymore. I love 
I was so strange that that's what he gave him. I am done. I am done with you, Babe Ruth. I don't want your crap anymore. I don't want your tainted autographed baseballs. Please be out of my life because I've recovered. And and now I'm just regular Johnny Sylvester at this point. I was watching this with my kiddo and, and I said, so the next thing that you see will be a black screen with white text and it will say Babe Ruth died. And sure enough, the next thing you see, it just, it's a cold ending. Yep. You, you got full circle with little Johnny Sylvester, apparently giving the ball back, which gave him life, but it did not save Babe Ruth's life. So it did, it did not. And, and the babe walks off. He says, I'm done. And little Johnny says, you're the best there's ever been, which was the exact opposite of this movie. We did it, Mark. We did it. We got through this whole whole movie. I feel dead inside. I feel very dead inside, but I feel somehow accomplished. Like I've cleansed, like I've like went to a sweat lodge and got this all out. <laughs> I think if this was a video podcast, then we would cut to a black Mark and Jackie died inside. <laughs> <laughs> I have some essay questions. Okay, go for it. Yeah. So I guess for our our uh, our, our final outs here, I'll pose some some questions for for us and if anybody wants to chime in down the road feel free do you care about babe ruth at this point you know i i used to care about babe ruth but they managed to take a legendary baseball player and make me absolutely hate him i felt grossed out by babe ruth all of this lip service stuff it's like he bought shoes for orphans and he gave bought them hot dogs at the ball game and it didn't help it was just no you are a rotten apple at the core, and it doesn't really matter what you're doing for the orphans of Baltimore, Boston, and New York, and then also possibly Boston again. It made me sad, and it also really tarnished my love of John Goodman. I have not gone back to watch The In-Laws again, but now I'm not sure that I can trust Arthur Hiller as a director. I think we should. I mean, we, we, won't, we don't need to talk about it here, but I think we should. I, I know that I had to cleanse... The this movie from my brain and watch something else. I actually was watching old episodes of Brooklyn Nine Nine, so <laughs> I watched that after this because I needed something that was actually clever and funny. It did make me go back and fact check it. This movie just does such a disservice to Babe Ruth that just don't watch it. Don't yeah. watch it. A lot of it was factually true, but the way it was portrayed was everything was like a caricature of what happened also just cramming in just weird stuff until they got to the end and they were like oh no we've got it we'll just have him fade out there and you know he died of cancer there we go we're good end of story it could have ended with him being inducted into cooperstown that might have been a nice way to end it but what if you took the stupid aerial shot we're back to the stupid aerial shot of yankee stadium <laughs> the house that ruth built which i didn't even think about until somebody mentions it i think kelly mcgillis mentions it mm-hmm. to colonel rupert but what if you showed a full stadium, an aerial shot. You heard Bob Shepard, the PA He's announcer, the longtime PA announcer of the Yankees, just giving a shout out to Babe Ruth on Old Timers Day. And you could even say when he died tragically of cancer at age 40, whatever. You could make it super poignant and you could tie it all back. But yeah, they, that's, not the, that's not the film we saw. That was definitely not the film we saw. One of the things I circled back to mm-hmm. was I didn't think he ran bases like that. I didn't think he was a real sloppy, twinkle-toe, ballet point dancer sort of person. I found some footage. It looked like he ran like a normal human being. Maybe a little, you know, a little funny because there wasn't that high-performance stride science in place. But mm-hmm. I found, I stumbled across all of these clips, short films of him. He was a very charming personality, a very plain spoken with a charming voice. He seemed like what I would have expected from Babe Ruth. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what accent John Goodman was doing, but I, it it wasn't an accent that sounded like Babe Ruth to me. I did watch a short film called Babe Ruth in Fancy Curves. Yes. You had told me about that. I did not get a chance to watch it, sadly. It was fascinating because he taught a team of women to play baseball. Yeah. So good he can teach the women to play. The way he comes across was that he was generous with his time mm-hmm. and he be- he believed that these women could do it. 
So it's it's a little bit of a tutorial. I think a lot of these films end up showing you how to hold a bat, how to lean in on a pitch and things like that. Yeah, some of the girls were wearing short shorts and it got a little awkward, but there was also... <laughs> no, there was some inappropriate touching, but it's fine. It's fine. That's what it, they did back then. Well, I don't, you know, I want to give too many spoilers here. Well, first of all, Babe Ruth does say that I've always thought that women should be able to play baseball just like men. Which, uh, you know, 1937, yep. hey, that's, that's very that, progressive. Yep. That's pretty right on. So good good for him for that. The, the one commonality between fancy curves and the babe with John Goodman was that they're fat jokes in both of these. And there was a very stout lady in this who was the worst player on the team. Of course. And she had the final at bat. The team was going to lose. Babe Ruth, as the manager of the women's team, calls them in for a final huddle, puts on a wig and takes the final at bat. And so I promised drag. So you saw you saw John Goodman wearing fur coats and kind of mm-hmm. like a like a fancy pants walking through New Orleans. You see the real Babe Ruth dressed up in a women's baseball uniform, taking an at bat for the uh, the the chubby girl who wasn't very good. I'm impressed that someone like Babe Ruth, who probably was courting a super masculine image, Mm-hmm. Would, would even do that, even if it was just for laughs. Listen, it's nine minutes long. It's not going to kill you to watch it. It was way more interesting to me and a better document of Babe Ruth as a human being as a, and a baseball player than this two-hour waste of time. Mark, you and I have spent an awful lot of time talking about the Babe. I think we're down to our final out. The fans are heading home. The grounds crew is on the field, and we will see you next time at the ballpark. That's our pal Ron Lewis on the stadium organ. And I'm Mark Butler. And I'm Jackie Micucci. And this was Bad Hops. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this podcast without the express written consent of Bad Hops is prohibited. Unless you like us, review us, or subscribe to Bad Hops. Find us at, at Bad Hops Podcast on Instagram and everywhere else. 